0: Welcome to The Intuitive Customer where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University.
1: We can use these theories and principles to arrange a choice situation such that it guides people in a particular direction.
2: It's in everything you do when you think about it. You know, the choice that you end up making is about the words that are used, it's about the way it's displayed, it's about what's happened previously, it's about the physical architecture of something. There's no
1: way in the course of normal life that you would pay $15 for a bucket of popcorn.
2: So Ryan, you know that I live in Sarasota in Florida. Yes. Nice part of the world. And... Recently, there's been some interesting changes that I thought was worth us talking about here today. And that is that the public benches that are in Sarasota, they've changed recently. And I thought the change was interesting because what they've done is that halfway along the bench, they've now put armrests. And when I initially saw it, I thought, oh, that's interesting, they put an armrest there, and that makes him a bit more comfortable. But what I then discovered was they didn't do it to increase the comfort of the people sitting on the bench, they did it (laughs) to dissuade the homeless population from sleeping on the bench. Right. Therefore, obviously, with an armrest halfway down, you can't sleep on the bench anymore. And that was part of their way of trying to deal with some of the problems that they have there. And I thought that was an interesting thing. And we get into this whole subject of choice architecture. And so I thought we could have a conversation around that and what is it and what some examples of that today.
1: Yeah, I mean, your example is an interesting one because it points to the idea, which will lead into what we're talking about today, that if you're trying to persuade people or get them to change their behavior, there are a number of different approaches you could take, right? So sort of could have stepped up fines right they could have said if you sleep on a park bench then we're going to fine you x hundreds of dollars for doing that presumably that would have motivated some people to do differently they could have stepped up enforcement yep so not necessarily mess with the fines just put more policemen out at night to go and check the benches they could have had a big persuasive campaign yep you know lots of billboards up around explaining to people how it was unhygienic or unsafe or And instead what they did is they created these physical barricades which made benches a less appealing option. We can take that principle and talk about it more broadly and behavioral economists and psychologists have done this and uh, kind of packaged a lot of these insights together in this idea of choice architecture. Now one of the, the running themes of this podcast is that behavioral Economists have been very, very good at marketing. Yeah, uh, they've taken some old ideas and kind of repackaged them and relabeled them in ways that got people excited about them. Now, as a marketing professor, I'm not denigrating that. I don't think that's you know, <laughs> cheap or foul or, or bad or anything. Look, if people were not previously excited about these great ideas, then they weren't doing anybody any good. So, I'm all for better marketing of good ideas
2: you know that I find the academia full of exceptionally great ideas but exceptionally poorly articulated yes <laughs> I mean they' just if anybody's tried to read an academic paper on something it's like it's written by a Martian basically
1: no it's by Martians for Martians your humankind are not welcome here
2: no absolutely right absolutely right I think the whole area of this Choice architecture is interesting because, as you say, and again, another theme of the podcast is there's never one thing that's happening here, so maybe they did increase fines and stuff like that. And the interesting bit I I found about putting the armrest halfway down the seat was it actually enhanced the seat right? if you weren't considering sleeping on it overnight. Right. No, it simultaneously made it
1: more attractive for its preferred use and less attractive for its unpreferred use
2: yeah no absolutely so i thought that was interesting but also there are clearly other examples of you know if you go for in a buffet line uh, into a buffet you know what do they put first in the buffet line and how can therefore mm-hmm. they encourage you to make the decision that you're making so what's happening here and i know we've done a couple of these things in the past where we've talked a bit about It's the small things that matter and the small things that help us make choices, et cetera, et cetera. So what's happening here from a technical perspective? Sure. So
1: let's start by defining choice architecture, which I should have looked it up before we started the podcast. But another running theme of our podcasts is how ill prepared I tend to be. So (laughs) I didn't. (laughs) It sounds like the kind of term that uh, Richard Thaler from University of Chicago won a Nobel Prize a couple of years ago. It sounds like the kind of thing that he would come up with. He's very, very good at remarketing these ideas. So if it's not him, I apologize for not giving credit to the person who's owed it. But it's this larger idea that we can take a lot of these insights from psychology, from consumer psychology, from behavioral economics, and taken as a package, we can use these theories and principles to arrange a choice situation such that it guides people in a particular direction, right? So that's choice architecture. Can you create, can you architect, can you design a choice setting yep. such that it nudges people in one particular direction?
2: So correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't have to be, when we're using the word architecture, it doesn't have to be something physical correct in the sense that you know it doesn't have to be an arm down the side of a on a bench correct it could actually be the words that are used the packaging that is used both of which i guess you could argue are physical (laughs) but those types of things as well
1: this conversation is steered hard in the direction of the metaphysical and i'm not comfortable with (laughs) what is physical um, I mean, if we get down to the um, <laughs> it's
2: a completely different subject and one uh, when I have a brain the size of a planet, I'll come back and talk about.
1: Good, good. We'll save that for another week. Yeah.
2: No, you're exactly right, right? So when we talk about constructing a choice, it could
1: be a purely hypothetical choice that exists only in our minds, right? I could, I could ask you about what restaurant you want to go to for lunch, and the order in which I list the options could influence your choice, yeah. right? So yeah. it doesn't have to be something physical, particularly not something physical, like a physical barrier, as you mentioned, like a, an armrest on a bench. Things like package design and you know website layout and shelf layout, all of these things contribute towards choice architecture.
2: I don't remember some of the details, but I'm I'm going to ask you about this. You used, I think, in the past, an example about opt-in and opt-out. Yep, that would very much be one. Can you just tell everybody that? Because I thought that was a good example of this. Sure. So
1: if you're big on TED Talks, this particular example has been used in several TED Talks. Dan Ariely has used it, although it was from a paper by Eric Johnson, Uh, from Columbia. So Dan Ariely is a professor at Duke. I feel like I just name dropped like eight people (laughs) in the last three three minutes. Basically, you don't need to believe me. I can name fancy people who you should believe.
2: You know, everyone's typing in those names now and looking
1: them up. So Eric Johnson and and another colleague, I know he wasn't alone on the paper, might have been Eric Yorkson. They created, or they found rather in the data on organ donations, that there were stark differences among different European countries. So most governments set up a system where if you want to be an organ donor, then when you're filling out some government ID card information, you just indicate on on your form that you're willing to be an organ donor, and then you're an organ donor. And what they found is that there are some countries that have very, very high rates in the high 90s, and there were other countries that had very, very low rates in the teens or low 20s. The United States tends to have very low organ donation rates. And what they found is that the only difference between these two countries was whether on that form where that you fill out the government form, do you opt in or do you opt out? So essentially I'm simplifying a little bit, but is there a checkbox that when you check it, it says, yes, I would like to be an organ donor? Or is it stated in such a way where it says, kind of we assume you want to be an organ donor if you don't want to be an organ donor if you want to opt out then check this box and that's the only difference but the way that they constructed that choice created the sense that there's a a norm or a preferred answer so opting in makes it sound like oh well, most people are not doing this so therefore it requires an extra kind of effort i should feel very strongly about wanting to do this before i do it yeah. Whereas opting out makes it seem like, oh, this is the norm. Everybody is doing this. You should feel very strongly about not doing it if you don't want to do it. Yeah. That small, subtle difference creates this whopping huge change in people's behavior.
2: And interestingly enough, the UK government have just made that change. Yeah. So they've changed from an opt out to an opt in. Uh, no, the other way around. From an opt in to an opt out. Correct. Thank you very much. I told you I didn't have a brain the size of a planet.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the UK government got very big into this idea of choice architecture. In fact, they created an internal department within the government that was looking for ways to better design choices to kind of
2: optimize societal good. Well, without getting political. Yes, go ahead. I do wish that it changed one thing, which was on the question about Brexit. The question was simply words to the effect of, do you want to remain in the European Union? Okay. And it was, you know, simple yes or no. What that means (laughs) is actually very different to 27 million different people, you know? Therefore, again, I think that the way that questionnaires are designed all those types of things can force different results and can force big problems because the UK has been um, massively debating what those actual words mean and what people actually voted for at the end of the day, because everyone's got a different view, basically. Yeah, no, that's exactly
1: right. I mean, I think this is another fantastic example of choice architecture. In this case, The choice was created in such a way that it was relatively ambiguous and people were able to read into that question lots of different things. You know, a a more business example of a similar phenomenon, when you go to rent a car, they try to sell you insurance along with additional coverage for your rental car. And that used to be kind of an opt-in system where they say, you know, do you want this? Check yes if you would like it. If not, check no. And recently, a bunch of these rental car companies have changed so that they, the answers are, yes, I would like insurance or no, I would like to be liable for up to $20,000 of additional damage. (laughs) So they've they've reframed this question to be more specific and to to not be dishonest. I mean, that's one of the principles of choice architecture when done correctly is that you should not be lying to people you should not be deceiving them what they're saying is true they are emphasizing though information that typically most people tend to not think that as being particularly likely or valuable or something that they care about but when framed in that way it becomes much harder to just simply check the no box suddenly now we're terrified of, of what might happen
2: yeah, and I think I mean they're clearly again go back to it. We, there's not one thing happening. They're obviously using things like loss aversion there of going, "Hey, we actually need to play on people's minds here that it's going to, you know, cost them a great deal of money and everything else." So I'd be interested in finding some stats on that. Maybe I'll have a look at that up after after the podcast.
1: Well, we're certainly not going to do it before the podcast. I mean, uh, you guys are getting what you paid for. With this
2: free podcast. Um, yeah, this yeah. is our choice architecture. <laughs> or our version of it, anyway.
1: After this podcast is you have better ways of spending your time, listener. You should really be doing something else other than listening. Colin did not find that funny, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you may end up on the cutting room floor. Yeah, you know, Your point about, you know, lots of stuff going on here is 100% correct. Choice architecture is an umbrella term. It was designed specifically to incorporate lots of things. So loss aversion is one of the principles of choice architecture. Framing effects, which we've talked about, and this opt-in versus out is an example of a framing effect. So you're communicating the same information in two different equivalent ways that somehow results in different outcomes. That's another principle of choice architecture. Context effect. So we've talked about the compromise effect or extremeness aversion. These are all principles of Choice architecture. And so it's it's just a, a simple, elegant way of describing all the various different tools that we have for creating and constructing a choice setting for people.
2: And some of those can include things like if you go into a restaurant, the menu design. Yep, absolutely. And how many items you have on your menu, or the one I've always found interesting is if you look at a menu does it have the dollar sign yep. on it because actually if you don't have the dollar sign on it there's evidence to show that that people think that the price is less because you don't have the dollar sign on it etc
1: yeah are your prices rounded versus are they you know to the penny and more specific even stuff like did you center the information like in terms of the alignment of the font did you center it in a column Or is it left justified or does it like take up the full column? All of these things have been shown to influence people in subtle ways in terms of the way they interpret the menu and interpret the prices on the menu.
0: Yeah. Let Beyond Philosophy help you discover what your customers really want, not what they say they want, by uncovering the hidden drivers of value in your customer experience to create real ROI. Contact Beyond Philosophy by going to beyondphilosophy.com slash contact. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash contact.
2: Are there any other examples out there that are worthy of note?
1: There was a study done that looked at, you know, how people order drinks at restaurants. And they found that, again, this is an example of extreme aversion. People tend to, in this particular context, avoid the ends a little bit. They don't like smalls and larges as much as they like mediums. In a lot of contexts, people like this compromise option. And so these researchers systematically changed the size of the small, medium, and large. And found yeah. that people were largely insensitive to it. So it didn't matter if the medium was 128 ounces. if It was this tankard of soda that you were getting. As long as it was the medium, we felt good about that.
2: But again, interesting that it's in threes. Interesting that it's, it's small, medium, and large. And I guess, and I'm maybe thinking about some of my friends here, some of the social context may be different as well in that choice. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean,
1: so that creates another context in which... We can influence the choice, how people are making this setting, you know, buying concessions at the movies is another example of a well-constructed from the, the retailer's perspective, from the movie theater's perspective, a well-constructed choice setting, right? So there's no way in the course of normal life that you would pay $15 for a bucket of popcorn. Sure. That's insane on its face. Uh, you sure. can buy a bag of microwave popcorn for you know pennies, and yet when we're in the context of the movie theater, we think about things very differently. They also have priced the bucket such that you feel like you'd be an idiot to not buy the largest bucket available because it's such a small price differential relative to the small. In the medium, even though we end up throwing away two-thirds of the popcorn in the bucket because no human can eat that much popcorn. (laughs) So all of these things were constructed over time in movie theaters to optimize profitability at the concession stand corner. So they created this choice situation for us so that it just feels natural or it feels intuitive or it feels like the right choice to buy the most profitable options for the
2: movie theater so building on that example there's a uh, cinema in sarasota that's one of these budget cinemas mm-hmm. so the irony is is it costs you two dollars to watch a film that's right and it costs you fifteen dollars to buy the popcorn that's right and obviously it's an interesting business model but there's part of that choice that's then going yeah, i don't really mind paying that because i'm got a night out for a, right. a you're, you're saving money on the movie
1: yeah you know again i don't understand the deep economics of the movie theater business. But my understanding is that whether it's a discount cinema or a, a full price new release movie theater, they make very little money on the tickets themselves. It's mostly sure. concessions. So, you know, for them running these later release, lower rent movies, they aren't making much money on the tickets anyway. It's still on the concessions. And if you feel like you've gotten a, a discount on the ticket getting in, then maybe you're willing to splurge for a little bit more on that popcorn and the candy and you're on the inside
2: yeah i know and the last example i've heard of which i think is a great one is on uh, pedestrian crossings where a lot of them particularly in the uk have got cameras so they actually sort of pick you up before they you know you go there so you press the button and you know no matter how many times you press it it's not going to make it happen any faster. Yeah. And actually, I believe that some of the buttons don't even work necessarily in the sense that they don't actually operate the... uh, They're not wired to anything. No, but you pressing the button and then waiting to walk across makes you not walk out straight away and get run over. So, you know, I think all this stuff is fascinating.
1: Yeah, a lot of the door close buttons on elevators are also dummies. They don't actually work. But when you're impatient and on an elevator and trying to go somewhere, having a fidget button that you can push several times to feel like you're doing something actually improves the customer experience of the elevator ride, as opposed to sitting there doing nothing, waiting for the door to close.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. So what does this mean that organizations should do listening to all this stuff? What should they now go away and do?
1: So there are a couple of things. When we talk about this in terms of like government policies, it can make people feel a little uncomfortable. You know, is this big brother moving in and forcing people to do stuff. There are a couple of principles about choice architecture writ large that are important to keep in mind. And then one very, very important point for firms that are seeking to implement this in their their own companies the point behind choice architecture so going back to richard thaler and he did say this i was there when he said this so unlike the term choice architecture i'm not sure if he coined that or not here i'm giving you the real the real dub he did actually say he described choice architecture as libertarian paternalism which he said was taking the two least favorable words in all of political discourse and putting them together in one (laughs) term. So libertarianism is the idea that you allow people freedom of choice. And then paternalism is the idea that you force people to do what's best for them. And the idea of choice architecture from governments who enact this appropriately is that you should still allow maximum freedom of choice while nudging people in the appropriate direction. So, you know, going back to the organ donation example, you're still allowing people to opt out. If people feel very strongly for religious or moral reasons or for some other reason that they do not want to donate organs after they die, you're still giving them that option, but you are nudging them in the direction of the societal good, which is making the most organs available for donation as possible. So to the extent that this makes people nervous on the government front, I get it, I understand that, and it can go very wrong when those principles are not adhered to, but the idea behind choice architecture is to allow freedom as opposed to the more coercive means that governments have like forcing people to sure. act in a certain way right or more draconian things like you know extensive fines or jail time right so sure. hopefully people see this as a positive from that perspective for companies yeah uh, go ahead
2: no so right. i was agreeing with you oh, okay well do you
1: want to agree with me again maybe louder
2: <laughs> i told you i didn't have a brain the size of a planet so i'm that's why I agree with you.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, no, that, that checks out. That makes sense. The thing for companies to realize, and this was a real insight to me when I was learning about this stuff, there's no neutral choice architecture. There's no neutral case, right? So go back to your example about the buffet, right? So yep. if you own a restaurant and you're laying out the buffet, there's no like natural neutral zero state way of laying out the buffet. Any order that you put the food in is going to change the way people load up their plates. The size of the plates that you offer people will change how much they take and put on the plate. So you should go into this with your eyes open, realizing that whatever you do, you're affecting your customer's behavior. Whatever way you organize your website, you're changing the experience for people. Are you doing it deliberately or are you leaving these decisions up to a designer who can make things look pretty but may not actually have the goal in mind of maximizing sales or maximizing positive customer behavior? Are you being deliberative about this?
2: Yeah, and that's exactly the advice I would give. Um, just to reinforce the point you're doing it anyway. I mean, this is a bit like when I talk to our clients about customer emotions and they, you know, they ask me, do they think it's the right thing and blah, 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 blah. And I say to them, look, you're evoking emotions in your customers now. The issue is, is that you don't know which ones and you're not in control of it. And the same applies with this. You know, you're doing those things now, but the key issue is, is that you're not designing it and you're not doing it deliberately. So You know, that needs to happen. The key for me from a business customer experience perspective is that you're thinking about it and the key word here is choice. Yeah. You're giving the customer choice, but you're using the science to try to guide that decision, but they can still importantly say no. And the other key thing that I think that we've talked about in this podcast is You've got to be honest and you've got to provide that choice. And, you know, you shouldn't be doing anything that guides people down completely the wrong path for them. So I think because that starts to enter into the whole word of people won't trust you and all the rest of it. And it literally, the irony is, it's a bit like going back to that Brexit question. It's in everything you do when you think about it. You know, the choice that you end up making is about the words that are used. It's about the way it's displayed. It's about what's happened previously. It's about the physical architecture of something, et cetera, et cetera. So we don't really recognize the effect that those things have. And I would encourage you to really take a a look at what you're doing. One of the things that we do for clients is what we call a customer mirror which is where we come out and we effectively experience your experience. So whatever experience that you're having with your customers and then give you feedback on it. And one of the things that we look for are the subconscious signals that organizations give out. So it goes back to this choice architecture piece of, you know, there's oftentimes people don't know, the problems that they are causing or the messages that they are giving subconsciously to customers. Classic example of that is you go in a bank and you put pens on chains, which says that, you know, I don't trust you. So, you know, or or you go in and sign something and there's 27 sheets of contract that goes along with it. So I hope that's been of use for people today. Any last thoughts, Ryan, before we wrap up? No, just the idea of being thoughtful
1: and deliberative about this. You know, your points that people are already doing it should be eye-opening to people. You're already doing it, just are you doing it well? Or are you doing it poorly (laughs) is the only question.
2: Good, so thanks very much for your time, everybody. If you've got any suggestions of what this podcast should be like, if you've got any feedback on how we're doing from a choice architecture perspective, then please drop us a line. All you've simply got to do is to go onto our website, which is beyondphilosophy.com. That's beyondphilosophy.com. Or drop us a line on email to contact at beyondphilosophy.com. That's contact at beyondphilosophy.com.